Life moves fast, and amidst the chaos, we try to keep up and manage and balance. Then, when it finally feels like things are under control, they begin to fall apart again. You wish you could just stop and focus on all the things that actually make you happy. But there's no time, and things keep moving, and all these things need your attention, and not so fast. Breathe. Reset. Let yourself lean into the peace of simplicity, and accept the gift of stillness that comes with quieting your soul. Refresh. There's something more, something bigger, buried beneath all these things you're piling on. A connection with God you don't want to miss out on. Refocus. The things that are blurry and unclear in the midst of chaos come into focus as you look through the lens of Christ. The peace you're hungry for, it's right here. And it starts with giving up the worry and control you've been feeding yourself. Goodness can be found in the chaos, but there's greatness in the depth of relationship that comes through calming your mind and trusting in prayer. Is your life running off the rails? Does it feel like all hope is lost? Not so. Fast. Good morning. And it is great to have you here. I'm particularly excited that you're here, here in Bellingham. Those of you at our Skagit campus, so thankful that you came out this morning, as well as those watching online with the live stream or in Boca Raton at the Trinity Church of God or in Belize. So glad that you're with us. Uh, just real quick question. Don't go too deep in this. Just straight up uh, take it service value here, wherever you're watching. Um, how many of you had breakfast this morning? Just curious. Okay. All right. That's it. That's it. Don't go any deeper than that. Uh, I just never know. It's the kind of thing a pastor wonders <laughs> as he gets up to preach. Yeah, anyway, hey, um, uh, so uh, as I said, I'm very excited that you're here today. And our elders um, this week as we gathered to pray, we prayed specifically for this day, for this gathering, for you today, uh, for us as a church, for this season that we're in. And I wonder if uh, we could join in what the elders have already done. Right now, would you just join me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your goodness and your love and the way that you desire the very best for us. I pray that today that our hearts would be open, our minds to receive your truth of your word that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that we would, we would consider how we would apply that to our lives, all for your glory. We pray in your name. Amen. Hey, last week, as we started a new year and a new decade, I talked about how Jesus started his earthly ministry with a proclamation, with an announcement, when the very first thing is he's opening up this, this public ministry where he says, the time is now, the kingdom of heaven is near, repent and believe the good news. That was like the opening proclamation of his public ministry. But just before he made that announcement, there were two very significant events that took place in his life. One was public and one was private, but they were both very significant. The public one was his baptism when he went and his cousin, John the Baptist, baptized him. Not just the baptism, but when he came up out of the water, the voice of the Father said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And this was out in the open. Everyone could see this. It was an amazing thing as a start to his ministry. The second event was private because scripture says that then the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness, led him into the desert, and for 40 days he was in the desert in this wilderness experience. 
And most often we think, oh yeah, that's the temptation of Christ, which it was. But there was something else that happened during those 40 days. That there was a time of, of intense spiritual disciplines, the discipline of solitude, the discipline of silence, the discipline of simplicity, the disciplines of prayer, and the discipline of fasting. And what's interesting is if you read Matthew's account, Matthew kind of implies that Jesus had spent these 40 days in this, this season of discipline and prayer and solitude and fasting, and after that, then the temptation came. It, it's kind of implied that, that it wasn't temptation for 40 days, it was this 40 days preparing, and then there was this temptation. And after 40 days of fasting, not eating any food, the Bible says, ironically, he became hungry, and then he was faced with the first temptation when the enemy said, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Take care of your physical needs. And it's interesting that Jesus quotes a verse out of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And many of you have heard this, many of you have read this, many of you could say it right now. But I don't know if you've ever looked at the context of what he's quoting. Because maybe it wasn't just the little portion of verse 3 that he's quoting. If you look at the context of Deuteronomy chapter 8, the context is when God is reminding his people Israel that he led them into the wilderness, Israel, led them into the wilderness, into the desert for 40 years. And this was a time of testing for them to see if they would be obedient to God's word and that they became hungry and God provided. You see the context and you can't help but see the parallels that Israel was led by God into the wilderness for 40 years. They become hungry, seeing if they will follow his obedient, uh, be obedient to his commands, and he provides. Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the desert, to the wilderness for 40 days. There's a time of testing and tempting, and to see if he would be true. And in that context, he becomes hungry, knowing that God provided for them. He knows that God will provide for him. And in that context, he says to the temptation, to the enemy, it is written... In Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, some of you have heard this all your life, and some of you think, see, he was advocating for a, for a low-carb Jesus diet. No, 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 no. Maybe what he was saying, besides the whole Deuteronomy 8 passage, is that sometimes you have to say no to something good in order to gain something even better. That there's nothing wrong with eating and there's nothing wrong with good diet and bread and all that. But sometimes you say no to even that which is good so that you can say yes to something that's even better. And Jesus demonstrated this. Jesus practiced this ancient discipline of fasting. And in fact, he taught on, in fact, all of next week's sermon, uh, we're just going to look at what Jesus taught about fasting. And it wasn't just Jesus because the pages of scripture are replete with examples and, and uh, instances referring to fasting. I said two events happened in Jesus' life, baptism and fasting, before the start of this ministry. You look through the entirety of scripture, the Bible speaks more about fasting than it does baptism. And there's individuals who fast and groups that fast and entire nations that fast for a day, for three days, seven days, 10 days, 21 days, 40 days, and yet, and yet, in our context, as American Christians, it's almost completely ignored. We're unaware of it. We just bypass it completely. I mean, the closest thing that we know about fasting is what most of you participated in this morning. Breakfast. The very word says that you are breaking the fast because you hadn't eaten since you had fallen asleep. And we go, look me, I fast every night. Oh, you're so spiritual. 
that we would break that fast. And yet we see uh, throughout scripture these examples of men and women who would choose to fast. I think that in the American church in the 21st century that we suffer from fasting phobia. Like there's this fear about it. And some of it's warranted, not all of it. Some of it says like, well, we, we've, we've heard about the abuses of fasting and we're worried about eating disorders and we know about people, the ascetics, who would starve themselves and, and the self-punishment and the self-flagellation with the whips and all the freezing themselves and all this. And that just doesn't seem healthy. It seems like it's very dangerous. Well, okay, I suppose there could be things that are taken to the extreme and especially in this ancient discipline of fasting. Yes, there are some dangers to avoid. But we might also say, well, it's not that I'm so afraid of it, but I just think it doesn't apply. It's outdated. I mean, multiple times already I've referred to it as an ancient discipline. So you say, that was for then, this is now. Or maybe we have this concept that really this is for, I mean, people that are like at a spiritual level that I'll never be at. That's fine for them, but it's just not attainable for me. And I think maybe there's a couple of other reasons why fasting is widely ignored and underutilized or unused in the church today. One is because we rarely hear about it. You don't hear a lot of sermons about it. There's not a lot of articles written about it. There's not, not a lot of books, there's not a lot of series. And I think there's a reason that we don't hear a lot about it from pastors and from, from great leaders. It's because if we were to take serious this discipline of fasting, it would mean that we would have to participate in something that is absolutely unthinkable, unimaginable, undesirable, and completely un-American. Self-denial. We don't want anything to do with that. Why would we deny ourselves? We live in the land of plenty. We're supposed to indulge ourselves, right? And so we don't hear about it because we don't want to deny ourselves. And I find it interesting that Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Here's another thing that's interesting. In the early church, it appears that fasting was kind of a regular portion or regular part of their whole worship experience. In Acts chapter 13, says, while they were worshiping the Lord, which we just did, and we're all about that, that's great, we wanna do that more, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. They just kinda of put those two together. They were worshiping the Lord and fasting, and in so doing, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work in which I have called them. That the group, the church, was worshiping God, and they were fasting, it was a part of their worship. And yet we avoid it completely, we stay away from it. There is an absolute famine of fasting in the church today. So, so, at least on one front, I want us in this arena to confront one of the issues of why that is. And that is because you never hear about it. So for the first time in my 27 years as your senior pastor, I'm gonna preach an entire series on this discipline, this spiritual discipline of fasting. Now, I've preached sermons a couple of times in 27 years, but we're gonna spend the next three weeks investigating, learning, exploring, discovering why would this be such a part of God's people for all the years and centuries and even millennia, and yet today we avoid it completely. So today we're gonna to start with some basics because for many of you, and this is not a shame game, many of you say, I don't know anything about it. Exactly, 
My fault. So today we're going to start, and I've called this sermon Fasting 101, and we're going to look at some basics, and then we'll build on it over the next couple of weeks. Let's start with just the word fast, fasting. Why would they call it fasting? And I know what you're thinking. We get through this fast so we can get back to eating. Uh, Granted, that's probably not the reason. The word fast means like to hold fast to something, something that is steadfast. It's where we get our word fastening, like you fasten a boat to the dock, that you restrain this boat so that it is, it is held fast. And the concept of fasting is that we would restrain our appetites and hold fast to a discipline, hold fast to a commitment for something better. Here's a kind of a working definition we're gonna go with on, when it comes to biblical fasting. The biblical fasting is voluntary denial for spiritual purposes. Voluntary denial for spiritual purposes. First of all, I just wanna set your mind at ease. It's voluntary. Uh, now, there, we will see there were times in, in history where God's people were called. Uh, it was, you know, um, like directed and commanded. But, but in biblical fasting, I believe in New Testament times, in, in our time, that it's voluntary. So there's not gonna be a lot of arm twisting, not a lot of heavy shame and guilt put on you, not trying to manipulate you into doing something you don't wanna do. It's voluntary. In fact, if you were forced to do it, it kind of loses its value. It's voluntary denial, this denying ourselves. And it's saying no, it's foregoing, it's putting aside something, and it's putting aside something good. Most often, not exclusively, and we'll cover this later, most often in the Bible, fasting refers to saying no to food or certain types of food uh, or, or for a time. Now, that's a good thing is to have food, but it's not just exclusive to food. Again, we'll cover that. Here's how sometimes we approach fasting. Some of you are familiar with the season of Lent. It's like, what are you giving up for Lent? And we think, oh, this is fasting, which it truly uh, began that way. But we think, oh, this would be a good opportunity for me to put off some of the vices that I've been holding on to. All this stuff I should have gotten rid of anyway. Yeah, it's time to kind of clean out my moral closet. Let's just kind of take a run to the dump on this one. Let's just kind of get all this stuff in and just kind of go through our, our acts of the sinful nature, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, and drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Yep. Okay, let's do away with those. All right, now let, let me just be really clear. When you say no to these vices, to these temptations, to these desires of the flesh, that's not called fasting, that's called obedience. That's what God calls us to. That's the ongoing transformational work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, transforming us into the likeness of Christ. That's not fasting. John Piper, in his great book called A Hunger for God, the whole book is on prayer and fasting, he said, fasting is not forfeiting that which is evil. It's forfeiting that which is good. The evil part, that's, that's obedience. And fasting, while there may be some things that we need to get rid of as we confess, it's saying no to something good in our life. And it's not just denial. It's not just saying, well, I'm going to not do this, or I'm going to say no to this, or I'm just going to kind of empty this out. It's for spiritual purposes. It's replacing it with something even better. It's saying no so that we can say yes. It's saying no to what is good so that we can experience and say yes to what is even better and greater. It's for spiritual purposes, for prayer, for worship, confession, seeking clarity, for power, for intercession, for prayer, for these things. And this is different 
than some of the other ways that you've heard about fasting. There are people that have fasted for political reasons. Maybe you're familiar with the life of Gandhi where he would go on these hunger strikes for a political purpose. There is fasting for medical and health purposes, for cleansing and preparing all that. And those are all fine. We are talking about spiritual purposes. And throughout the pages of scripture, you see the who's who of of the people who participated in this discipline of fasting. Moses fasted, David fasted, Job fasted, Daniel and his buddies fasted, Nehemiah fasted, Jeremiah, actually all the prophets fasted, Esther fasted, got the whole country. Esther got the whole country to fast with her. John the Baptist fasted, Paul fasted, as we saw Jesus fasted. Uh, There were times entire countries fasted, different groups that would fast. The early church fasted. You know, in the Christmas story, uh, there's this beautiful character that doesn't get much airtime. An old widow, uh, I shouldn't say old because some of you may be her age. Uh, A widow who is in her senior years. She's 84 and her name is Anna. And this is what scripture says about Anna. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. It was just a part of her worship. It was a part of her life to say no to something in order to say yes to something even better. And what's interesting, when you look at that and when you look at fasting, you begin to understand that fasting might be something we ought to learn a little bit more about. Now here's the truth about biblical fasting is that biblical fasting centers on God, always centers on God. Because there are some built-in dangers with fasting where we can turn it into being about us. And we'll look at this next week, and Jesus confronts this, that fasting can bring about a source of pride, a sense of spiritual superiority. Look at me, I'm fasting, how spiritual I am. Look at me, I'm fasting, they are not. I must be more spiritual than them. It can also be about me, because I'm disciplined, therefore I deserve this. And God must answer my prayer because I've given up this. Or I've learned to fast and it's become such a wonderful mountaintop experience. I do this for my experience. Listen, those are all, not all, some of those things are good. The the power that comes in prayer, the clarity that comes, the breakthrough and all those things. But it is primarily about God. John and Charles Wesley, some of you have heard of them. These these men had a very um, systematic approach towards discipleship. Uh, Very structured, um, very methodical. In fact, they were nicknamed and took on the name the Methodists because of the methods used in their their, um, idea of pursuing Christ. And John uh, and Charles Wesley, part of their methods, part of their structure, part of their system was that every Christ follower they they, uh, instructed should fast on Wednesday and Friday until three in the afternoon. And John Wesley would not ordain any pastor into the ministry if he didn't fast two days a week. He said about fasting, first let it, fasting, first let fasting be done unto the Lord with our eyes singly fixed on him. Let our intention herein be this and this alone, to glorify our Father which is in heaven. And as we explore this, we need to always remember that the purpose of fasting is to remind us that we were created for God's purposes and for his glory, not the other way around. Because sometimes we can think, well, this is a way to get God to do our purposes for our glory. We've missed it completely. 
It's all about God's purposes. And when I can say no to my purposes and my glory so that I can say yes to God's purposes and God's glory, that is a very beautiful thing. And that only comes about with humility. Humility and fasting go together. Always go together. And there's a reason for that. Because when it's all about me and my pride, then I completely eliminate any of the benefits that come from fasting. In the book of James, very familiar verse says, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When we humble ourselves in this spiritual discipline, we find God's grace. Now, here's what I wanna do for the remainder of our time. Because I said this is fasting 101. I wanna give you some history just so you can understand where this is all coming from. I want, you, I want to give you biblical history, uh, some of the history of Israel. I want to give you some of the history of church history a little bit, uh, even some U.S. history, and some Cornwall history. So you ready for history lessons today? All right, well, whether or not you are, here we go. So let's start with Israel, the history of Israel, and the history of fasting with Israel. When God brought Israel out of bondage, out of the slavery, out of the, the Egypt for 400 years, they have no idea what it means for him to be their God and them to be his people. This is all brand new to them. So God says, let me instruct you on how this is gonna work and, and it's gonna be great for you. You stay committed to me, follow what I decree and I will take care of you because I'm your God and you're my people. In the midst of all that, he makes a certain provision knowing that there are gonna be times where they mess up. Knowing there's going to be times where they fail. Knowing there's going to be times when they sin, where they rebel. And he wants there to be a way for them to get back into a right standing with God. And so you can read all this for yourself in Leviticus chapter 16, which I know you were probably there this morning. But in Leviticus 16, he sets up this certain day. It's the day that we refer to as Yom Kippur. You've heard the name or the title Yom Kippur, which ironically is the same title of Pastor Kip's next book. It's a cookbook called Yom Kippur. So, but this is different. <laughs> Yom Kippur means day of atonement. And it was on that day that the high priest would go in and make a sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation, that there would be the scapegoat and they would put the sins of the nation on that symbolically and send it off and then they would sacrifice this on behalf of the nation. And on this day, the nation would be put back into a right standing with God. And as the high priest did all this, there was a specific instruction for the people of Israel. And this was their instruction. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the 10th day of the seventh month, you must, and here it is, deny yourselves, deny yourselves, and not do any work, whether native born or an alien living among you, because on this day, Atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of rest. Don't do any work on this day. And you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. So on the day of atonement, on Yom Kippur, the entire nation would not work and they would not eat. They would fast in humility, in confession, in repentance, in returning to God to get the relationship with God right. That's where it starts. And it was, it was compulsory. Once a year, everybody fasted on this specific day. 
Well, quick uh, history through, through time with Israel. They go through the kings. They split the, the, the kingdom. They have horrible kings in the north, mostly bad kings in the south. Uh, God sends prophets over and over again saying, listen, if you don't get right, it's not going to be good for you. They're saying, is this a threat? He says, it's not even a promise. It's just, a, it's just the reality. And it doesn't have to be this way. They don't listen. They sin. They rebel. They're disobedient. And God says, okay. I mean, I warned you. I mean, he is so patient and so merciful and so gracious. So in 722, the Assyrians come in and attack the northern kingdom and the ten tribes will never come back the way they were at that point. A few years later, in 605, Babylon comes in and attacks the southern kingdom. And you'll remember, this is when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are taken off. For 70 years, they're taken into exile. God says, listen, I love you. I'm not done with you, but you're in timeout. It really was. It was a 70-year timeout. I want you to go over there and I want you to think about what you've done. You know, and so for 70, in fact, he says, get used to it. You're going to be here for a while. Make yourself at home. In fact, make homes for yourselves. Have kids. Settle down. But for 70 years, think about what you've done. So they're in timeout in Babylon. While they're in Babylon, there's annual feasts that are commanded, four of them specifically. Uh, And it says this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The uh, fast, I said feast. The fast of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months. So now it's not just one day a year. Now they're commanded four times a year to have this time of humility, of self-denial, of fasting. These aren't just arbitrary random months that are picked out of a hat. Each of these months represent an event that happened in the Babylonian captivity. You can read all this for yourself uh, 2 Kings chapter 25, it's all there within about 17 verses. In the 10th month, in the 10th month, Nebuchadnezzar laid siege on Jerusalem. So they said, you know, in the 10th month, I want you to fast to remember that. And they closed up the gates of Jerusalem and they stayed there. And they held up, you know, they kind of held their own for a, for a while, but they ran out of food. So in the fourth month of the next year, the walls were breached the armies came in and the city fell. He says, I want you to remember that. It was a horrible day. And then the next month, in the fifth month, they came in and they burned not only the city and the, and the houses and the important buildings, they burned the temple, which for the Jewish people was, was like the worst of the worst. And so now that the, the, not only has the city been sieged, not only have the walls been breached, now the temple and all of the, the great things of Jerusalem have been destroyed, they've been burned. And there's this guy who becomes governor over those who are left. It's a guy you've probably never heard of. Uh, his name is Gedaliah. And Gedaliah was kind of their last hope. He was their last string they were holding on to. But in the seventh month, which was also the month that they had historically fasted because of the Day of Atonement, in the seventh month, Gedaliah was assassinated and all hope was lost and everyone fled to Egypt again. So for 70 years... The people that are in captivity are fasting four times a year, and it all represents these things that happened in the exile. And it was a, a time to, to remember like a memorial day. It was, it was a horrible thing. They weren't celebrating this. They were mourning for what had happened, and not only what had happened, more importantly, why it had happened. Why did these things happen? God had warned us, but it was our sin, it was our rebellion, it was our disobedience. And they give 70 years to think about this. Why did this happen? Don't let this happen again. But here's the beautiful thing, is that God says, hey, listen, even when you're in timeout, I'm not done with you. 
In fact, it was while they were in this 70-year timeout that God gave those words that some of you hold on to as your life verse, not realizing it was a 70-year promise. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. God says, wait a second. Yes, you're in timeout. Yes, I want you to think about this. Yes, there's some time for mourning and repentance and returning and confession, but I am not done. In fact, Zechariah says, these fasts of these months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. God says, I'm gonna redeem you. And these things where you have been mourning, you are gonna be celebrating because these fasts also not only remember what happened and why it happened, it also reminds you that there is a hope because there is a God who is gracious and compassionate and full of loving kindness and mercy for you. It's a beautiful thing. Fast forward. 500 years later, the Jewish people have instituted now fasting, not as an annual tradition, not as a four times a year tradition, but as a weekly discipline. In fact, the Pharisees actually have now began to fast twice a week. Most likely, um, it is believed, on Monday and Thursday, we'll get into that next week, most likely on Monday and Thursday, they would fast twice a week. The problem was, it had become very legalistic, ritualistic, and very self-focused. In fact, Jesus, you may remember, he, he takes this reality that they're experiencing and he weaves it into one of his stories. When he tells about two people who come before the altar, come before God, and he shows a picture of what it really truly means to be poor in spirit. And one just won't even look up and says, have mercy on me. And the other one is a Pharisee who is all full of himself, not like this sinner, he says. And he prays about himself. And Jesus put into this, this parable, this is what he prays. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. I'm a faster and a tither. And the message of the parable is, listen, all your self-centered legalistic works are not gonna make you right with God. This one who's humble is. And so there was this abuse of this, this discipline of fasting. Even though it was used a lot, it had lost all of its power and all of its meaning and all of its significance of, of what it was truly for. Because it had become self-centered. Become about my pride. About my purposes. About my reputation. About my image. About my spirituality. Now as I mentioned before, Jesus fasted. Again, back in Matthew 4, says after 40, fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. He fasted and he taught about fasting. But with Jesus, it was different. Jesus didn't get into this legalistic aspect of fasting. And it wasn't a pride-filled thing with fasting. For Jesus, it was like free and beautiful. There was a time, maybe you remember the story where where Jesus comes across a tax collector named Matthew or Levi, same guy. And he says, hey, um, why don't you come follow me and let's go to your house to eat. I believe, I can't prove this, but I, in, in the context, I think there's a strong case that that day that he ran into Matthew was either a Monday or a Thursday. I think it was one of the fasting days that all the Pharisees fasted on. So Jesus and his disciples go to Matthew's house. This ticks off the Pharisees. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. That they're actually eating with Matthew, and it may have not just been that who they were eating with, but it may have been a problem of when they were eating, if it was on one of those fasting days. Because right on the heels of that 
we read this. Then John's disciples, these are good guys. They followed John the Baptist. John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? I think the reason that this could have been on a Monday or a Thursday is because John's disciples and all the Pharisees are fasting. Everyone knows this is the day they fast. And Jesus and his disciples are having an all-you-can-eat at Matthew's house. They're not even sneaking around. They're not even trying to cover it up or hide it and eat like this. I mean, they're openly eating on a fasting day. And John's disciples, and these are good guys. We're not talking about the Pharisees. These are good guys. They're saying, Jesus, why is it that we fast and you and your disciples don't? A little side note, Andrew and another one of Jesus' disciples used to be disciples of John the Baptist, but they came over to follow Jesus because they could eat. No, I'm just kidding. That's... That's probably why I would switch, but because Jesus is God. All right. So in this context, they're asking, why is it that you and your disciples don't eat? So Jesus and his disciples weren't doing the legalistic thing. And Jesus makes this statement. We'll look at this more next week. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Richard Foster, in his classic Celebration of Discipline, in his chapter on fasting, said that these words, then they will fast, is the most important phrase in all of the New Testament as to whether or not we should fast in our day. That Jesus says, then they will fast. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say what day they will fast on, when they will fast, how long they will fast, what they will fast from, he just simply says, then they will fast. It's interesting how we as humans can take something so free and so beautiful and make it so restrictive and so legalistic and so self-focused. A little church history. 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea, all the church leaders decided that those who are followers after Christ should spend a season of time in humility and confession and repentance and preparation and self-denial in preparation for the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And they thought 40 days would be a good time. And so in 325, there was the start of what we refer to as the Lenten season, Lent. And the whole idea was that in those 40 days, you would fast, you would give something up, and specifically, they would say, like animal products, any kind of meat, cheese, eggs, uh, milk, those, they would give those up. And for those 40 days, they would have this time of, of cleansing and preparation and confession and holiness and selflessness and self-denial in preparation to celebrate the greatest thing of all times. And what's interesting is that over time, that has gotten kind of twisted. Because when they were doing all this, they didn't have the benefit of refrigeration or freezing. So if they were going to go into this 40 days without eating these things, instead of throwing them away, they would gather before it started to consume all of these perishable items that otherwise would be thrown away. You've heard of this season called carnival. Not like the carnival at the fair, but carnival is a season of carnival. Carnival comes from two words, carne, which means... Meat, right. And levere, which means 
to get rid of, to dispose of, to be done with. The whole word carnival started from this, it's time to say farewell to the meat because it will spoil. And so they would gather their family together to have this big feast to get rid of this stuff. Well, over time, this becomes Mardi Gras and Fat Tuesday before Ash Wednesday, and it's this time of self-indulgence. And what's interesting is more people are excited about Fat Tuesday than they are Ash Wednesday, and more people participate in Mardi Gras and all this revelry. What was supposed to be pursuing holiness has now become pursuing hedonism. It's crazy how we've turned it around for our own selfish purposes. What was supposed to be about self-denial has become self-indulgence. So now people party like crazy on Fat Tuesday and don't even realize why, except, hey, here's an excuse to party. And the whole thing started with self-denial and preparation for celebration of the resurrection of Christ, a time of fasting. All right, that was just for fun. Now you you can really feel guilty on Fat Tuesday. All right, so Jesus comes along and he says, listen, I'm not gonna tell you when or how or how long or what from. I'm just gonna tell you They will fast. And for Jesus at this moment, he gives us not a command, but an opportunity, an invitation. It's it's not this drudgery and have to and legalism. He said, this this is not, that's your blank, by the way, not a command, but an invitation. That that this is a a sacred opportunity. It's, It's a beautiful, beautiful privilege to be able to humble ourselves, deny ourselves, and connect and seek God, to come right with him. And I, I mentioned that there were times in Israel's history, and others, Nineveh as well, where entire nations were called for a time of prayer and fasting, for specific purposes, different purposes. I love this verse out of Joel in one of these instances, when it says, blow the trumpet in Zion, Declare a holy fast. This is for God's purposes. Holy, set apart for God's purposes. A holy fast. Call a sacred assembly and gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders. Gather the children. He says, let's get the whole whole nation together. The old people, the young people, the families, let's get everybody together and let's call this what it is. This is for God's purposes. Let's humble ourselves together collectively before God. Let's deny ourselves together as a community. Let's confess, repent, let's reconnect with God. How great would it be if something like this could happen in the United States? I mean, we sit around saying, God bless America. Of course, we can't even say that anymore because we're gonna offend somebody. What if our rally cry was not, God bless America, what if it was, America bless God? Not God, we want to leverage you for our purposes and our glory. God, we want to submit ourselves for your purposes and your glory. How great would that be? A little American history. John Adams, James Madison, Abraham Lincoln, three of our presidents, all three of them in their presidency called on the United States for days of humility self-denial, prayer, and fasting. Abraham Lincoln in his presidency three times. We're in the heart of the Civil War, the most divided time our nation's ever experienced, the bloody wars of that, the moral issues of that. And I wanna read for you a a portion, it's a, a little bit long, it's not even close to the entirety, a portion 
of what Abraham Lincoln wrote. Whereas the Senate of the United States, so this is coming from the Senate, this is beautiful. Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and of nations, has by a resolution requested the president to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation. That the Senate came to, to Abraham Lincoln and said, would you set apart a day for us as a nation, for us to humble ourselves and to pray? Goes on and on with all these whereas, whereas, whereas. Now, at the end, therefore, in compliance with the request and fully concurring in the views of the Senate, I do, by this my proclamation, designate and set apart Thursday the 30th day of April, 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And I do hereby request all the people to abstain on that day from their secular, ordinary secular pursuits and to unite at their several places of public worship in their respective homes in keeping the day holy to the Lord and devoted to the humble discharge of the religious duties proper to that solemn occasion. How unbelievable it would be if the United States would do this again. I don't want to be a naysayer. I don't want to be an Eeyore. I don't think that's going to happen. But, but, there is absolutely nothing that would keep us from doing something like that. Regardless of what our nation does, regardless of what our state does, regardless of what our counties do, regardless of what our cities do, we as the people of Cornwall Church could do this. That we could collectively, voluntarily say, we are going to humble ourselves. We are going to deny ourselves. And we are going to come seeking more of God. Let me give you a little bit of Cornwall Church history. Last week I said in January of 93, we were up against this unknown, uncertain future. We didn't have a senior pastor, all that. Later I became the senior pastor. In August of that year, I went back and looked at my notes. I, I have notes from every sermon I've ever preached. Old school, files. Okay, so August 1st, 1993, I was in the middle of a series on prayer and I preached one of my few sermons on fasting that weekend. And I made a comment at the end of that sermon how cool would it be if there were 30 people from Cornwall Church that would say, I'd be willing to fast one day a week, and we could have people praying and fasting every day for the entire month throughout the year. How cool would that be? It's just a passing comment. After the services, people came up and said, hey, put me on that fasting calendar. I want to be one of the 30, all that. And we started. Some of you were a part of that. Some of you did this. We started this prayer and fasting calendar, and every day there was someone praying and fasting for the ministries of Cornwall Church. And over the years, I mean, it, uh, you know, there were some times where it kind of became more, a little more legalistic for some of us, a little more drudgery, and the, the motives got kind of messed up and all this, and, and I'll tell you more about that later. It, it, it just kind of lost something, and so we actually eventually did away with that calendar. However, the elders of this church continued on. Because one of the things as people come onto our elder board is one of the expectations is that they will fast one day a week for the ministries of the church. We're not legalistic on this. We don't tell them how long of that day or what they need to fast, but it's just that you would be praying and fasting. And from that day until this day, there's been an elder praying and fasting for the ministries of this church. Now fast forward again. 
in the fall of 2016, uh, Cornwall Church was invited to an invite-only conference, kind of exclusive, I suppose. Hundreds of churches were invited. But, uh, so Pastor Jeff and Pastor Kip and I went. And the church that this convention or conference was held in, God was doing some incredible things. And as you would ask people from whatever ministries in the church, what do you attribute this to? They would all point to one thing. This church started with 21 days of prayer and fasting. 21 days comes out of Daniel. We'll talk about that later. 21 days of prayer and fasting. And for every year, we always engage in a season of prayer and fasting. In fact, twice a year, we set aside 21 days for prayer and fasting. We've talked about this. How cool would that be to have that at Cornwall? Well, we got busy and time went on. A little over a year ago, Pastor Jeff came into my office, just almost a year ago, probably. He said, you remember when we talked about how great it would be to start off the new year with a season of prayer and fasting? I said, yeah, I know, too late for this year to get that all together. And he said, Bob, why don't you and I do it? I mean, it doesn't have to start with the whole church. Let's start it with you and me. And that's a great idea. I said, okay. And I said, well, the elders are already fasting. Why don't we invite them in on that and just to let them kind of just be a part of that. And, and you know the pastors are gonna be ticked off if they hear about it and they weren't included. So let's, let's invite them in. And so all of our pastors and our elders last year from February 1 to February 21 went into a season of prayer and fasting. And then it was this like, why don't we invite our staff into this? No, no pressure, no obligation. It wasn't commanded. It wasn't mandated. It was offered as an invitation, an opportunity. Don't do this pridefully. Do it humbly. Don't do it legalistically. Do it freely. Don't do it as a burden. Do it with joy. And many of our staff joined us on that. So last year, from February 1 to 21, our pastors, our elders, our staff engaged in a season of prayer and fasting for our church, which leads us to today. That today starts what we're going to have of three weeks of study, our series, and three weeks of an experience with prayer and fasting. So for today and the next two weeks, we're just going to study. What does God's word say? Why is it that men and women would choose to do this over the centuries? And why is it that we do not? What does God's word say? And then in February, from February 1st to February 21st, we're inviting you to join us, pastors, elders, our staff, and join us like we did last year. Join us in a season of prayer and fasting. Now, some of you right now are saying, no way. You want me to not eat for 21 days? Are you kidding? What about the Super Bowl? What about Valentine's Day? Breathe there, hangry one. (laughs) Hold on. Listen to me. Hear me clearly. I'm not asking you to not eat for 21 days. In fact, today, I'm not even asking you to agree to join us in that 21 days. Here's what I'm asking from you today. Would you be willing to engage in this series to learn, discover, explore what is it that God has in mind for fasting and simply ask God this one thing, is this something you would have for me? If God says no, great. If he says yes, we'll give some more specifics. And what if, think about this, what if the majority of us, what if all of us voluntarily, not guilt, not manipulated, not twisted. What if we voluntarily said, we are together, not for a prideful purpose, we are gonna humble ourselves. We're gonna deny ourselves. 
And we're going to reconnect. We're going to focus on God. We're going to cement ourselves for his purposes, for his glory. Imagine the spiritual breakthroughs. Imagine the intercessory prayer. Imagine the revival that will take place in our hearts, in our church, in our families. And, and, and. Imagine if. This isn't, not on a legalistic way, but this just becomes a rhythm of our church. This becomes a DNA part of our church. Just as many of us look forward to Easter and we look forward to Christmas Eve and we look forward to Gift of Grub and Cornwall at the Mall and the Cornwall Toy Hall. What if in the same way in the baptisms in May, what if we look forward to every February we knew we as a group were gonna just humble ourselves and seek God in a time of a season of prayer and fasting? What if that was the, who we were? And why would we do this? deeper hungering and thirsting for God, that's why. To hunger and thirst for only that one who will satisfy. Jesus said this in Luke chapter six. Blessed are you who hunger now for you will be satisfied. And what if our spiritual, what if our physical hunger leads to deep, deep soul, spiritual satisfaction. What if we saw what God had for us and heard Jesus said, they will. They will fast. In freedom and beauty, voluntarily, for God's glory.